today's episode, Krista McAuliffe and the Challenger Disaster. Hello, and welcome to Technology in Space, where we talk about the science, technology, history, and business of space exploration and commercialization. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Kevin Cook, author of The Burning Blue, the untold story of Christy McAuliffe and NASA's Challenger disaster, published by Henry Holt and Company, June 8th, 2021. Thank you for speaking with me. Glad to be with you, Chris. So first, how did you get um, into studying this topic and, and writing a book on it? Uh, I think I'm one of the millions of people who remembers where uh, he was. At the moment that uh, the television replays began, it's one of those events that's played over and over, really shared by millions of people on TV screens all over the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I thought about the event, I realized that I didn't know a great deal about it. I could name Krista McAuliffe. I couldn't name any of the other members of the crew, which turns out to be a remarkable crew. I mean, I think all crews of astronauts are remarkable crews. This one, more diverse and fascinating, uh, one of the most diverse and fascinating, I think. And the more time I spent thinking about this project, the more intriguing it got to tell seven life stories rather than just one. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm also one of the people who believed that when we saw the awful conflagration in the sky on television, that that was the end for the astronauts. And it was not. They lived several minutes longer than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I believe there's very strong evidence that they behaved heroically in those minutes. Mm-hmm. So uh, tell me then how you lay out the book. Um, what's your approach? Just the way it's structured is, is uh, opening with the launch, Mm-hmm. Uh, which is certainly one of the, the most uh, compelling moments. Uh, everyone says there's no there's no simulator that comes close to matching the the vibration of of an actual launch. This scary moment, Krista McAuliffe, who was a you know a year before, she is a social studies teacher in a medium sized city. She didn't go into this to get famous. Mm-hmm. Um, she was really she was someone who told her kids again and again. He always tried to bring the the outside world into her social studies classroom. And and she would say, you have to take chances. You have to do things that might scare you a little bit. And the reward might be something that will last your whole life. Mm-hmm. She told them one morning, she said, you're going to, you're going to laugh. But I applied for the teacher in space program. And it was a way to challenge herself. And, and also as it went on to promote her cause I mean, NASA wanted her to do a great deal of PR, which she did very gracefully and uh, effectively. But she had a cause, too, and she was nobody's pawn. She wanted to promote the cause of underworked, uh, under well, they're overworked and they're underpaid mm-hmm. school teachers all over the country. Um, she did that. Uh, so after, after setting up a launch, which, uh, you know, for everyone is a, is a remarkable moment, mm-hmm. uh, then it becomes in some some sense a biography of Krista McAuliffe, at least leading up to the time that she meets this remarkable crew. Then their training is to me fascinating. And it was utterly new to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I wind up talking to Frank Hughes, who was the training director at the time, to many astronauts. Um, and and it, it just becomes such a fascinating process to try to tell the whole story through her eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like your approach was... Um 
uh, one, you know, looking at someone who is from outside this world and, and sort of the surprises and, and her discoveries as she went along. That's true. And when she went through the whole uh, process of being chosen, the vetting process, um, the runner up from uh, New Hampshire, a wonderful man named Bob Vio, who, uh, who was all, another admirer of Krista's, but he mentioned how gee whiz she was going in. And, and that's something she really conveyed. She was very good on television. I mean, after she used to sit up late at night with a cup of tea, as I have here, and, and uh, great papers with the Johnny Carson show mm-hmm. running with the sound down in the background. Next thing she knows, she's on the Johnny Carson show, and the band is playing Off We Go into the Wild Blue Yonder. <laughs> she's on the Today Show. She handled all these things with, with great panache. Mm-hmm. One thing she struggled with was the math. There's a sort of college-level math you're going to have to master in order to get through training for a space shuttle mission. Mm-hmm. And she struggled with that. She had a tutor uh, and it wasn't going very well at all. So another member of the crew, the remarkable Dr. Judith Resnick became Krista McAuliffe's unofficial math tutor. They became friends two utterly dissimilar people. Uh, and, and a friendship like that is something that uh, uh, is, is a pleasure to tell the story of that as well. Mm-hmm. So, what would you say, can you focus or did you focus on certain themes in the book, considering the, the many ways uh, you could have gone in writing it? You know, you could have made it very technical or more human focused. Um, tell me your approach there. I think my approach was with a general uh, readership in mind. I mean, I didn't want to bore people who are astronauts. I wound up talking to several of them, and I know now one one-thousandth of the switchology, a term I was unfamiliar with going in. Switchology is a wonderful discipline. Mm-hmm. Uh, five-time shuttle commander Jim Weatherby, you know, sat through in, in, a, in a way uh, – somewhat similar to what uh, Judith Resnick did with uh, Krista McAuliffe, although Krista is probably smarter than I am uh, going in. Uh, But I wound up knowing enough about switchology to know, to be able to say where a shuttle commander would reach Mm -hmm. in a moment when all the power went out, what, what he might do next to think like a commander. Um, This, this, the commander of this uh, mission, uh, Dick Scobie, it was his first command. It was his second uh, space flight. And he's one of those guys, like like the man to his right, uh, the pilot, Mike Smith. Mm-hmm. These are these are flyers in the in the old time Chuck Yeager and Mercury 7 mode. These are guys uh, who, who would barely blink at landing a jet on an aircraft carrier. Uh, it was said of Scobie that he could land a paper airplane in a hurricane. Uh, his job here was to form a crew, a cohesive crew that could count on each other to bring payload specialists like Krista McAuliffe and Gregory Jarvis. And payload specialists aren't astronauts. They're on there in some sense as uh, if, if you're Jarvis, who worked for uh, Hughes Aircraft and had tragically been bumped off of two previous shuttle flights, um, it's, it's a reward. To one of the NASA's partners, one of NASA's business partners, uh, and he earned it. There were many, many candidates. Uh, in Krista McAuliffe's case, it was in some sense a PR stunt because the public had gotten a little tired of the shuttle program. It wasn't even on live television anymore. Mm-hmm. Jerry Seinfeld had a routine. So are, are they still even flying the shuttle? Mm-hmm. To make it interesting, they need to put somebody on there who doesn't want to go, who'd be looking out the window saying, let me out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, when Sally Ride flew in 1983, suddenly the shuttle was huge news again. 
but it fell off. There's a very intense pressure to uh, keep it in the public eye. NASA always relied on good press to, to keep the public excited, as we're seeing again now. And I am, again, very, very excited today about the next steps in the space program. Mm-hmm. Um, so the teacher in space program was was in a way a way for the President Reagan to tip his cap to teachers, school teachers, mm-hmm. who also happen to be represented by the most powerful uh, labor union in the country, especially uh, at that time, mm-hmm. um, but also to, to rekindle interest in the shuttle program. And there was, in fact, uh, and I read many details about it, something else I had no idea going in, there was a journalist in space program all teed up and ready to go. They were already winnowing down candidates, mm-hmm. including Walter Cronkite, Tom Brokaw, Geraldo Rivera, the young Geraldo was a candidate, and uh, Norman Mailer, of all people, and uh, and George W. Will, George F. Will, rather. Mm-hmm. Uh, George F. Will, the great uh, columnist, wrote that uh, the best thing about the journalist in space program would be that Earth would have to be better with one fewer journalist <laughs> on the, the planet. Uh, but, of course, they scrapped that program after the awful tragedy uh, of Challenger. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, the book description, you also go into um, the aftermath of the disaster. Yes. And, and I was unaware of entering this, this long process of uh, the, it was the largest uh, salvage operation in the history of the Navy hmm. uh, that, that tried to find the crew compartment. No one knew where it had landed exactly. And it was a great deal of effort made to find it to recover what could be recovered of the uh, craft and the crew. And then, of course, there is a presidential commission. And as uh, uh, one uh, NASA expert, Mike Cinelli, who heads the uh, Lessons Learned program uh, for NASA, talks about we we see these things again and again. There's a terrible disaster, and then there's a presidential commission, Mm -hmm. and then we tend to forget and take things for granted again, cut corners perhaps. Schedule pressure gets too hard to resist again, perhaps. Columbia, of course, happens 17 years later. And um, then that led to yet another presidential commission. I was fascinated particularly by the role that the great physicist Richard Feynman played in the uh, presidential commission investigating Challenger. Um, he, He was on worldwide television with one of the most remarkable, simple scientific demonstrations ever where he puts a piece of rubber in his ice water, mm. and it stiffens. That was the problem with the the infamous O-rings. Mm. Uh, and as his friend and colleague Freeman Dyson said, there had never been on television a better example of how, what science is when it's done well mm. than, uh, than what Feynman did. And uh, Feynman, of course, uh, also had a great attitude about feeling uncomfortable in Washington. Mm. He put on a suit and tie so he could try to pass for one of the uh, people who uh, actually lived and worked there. Mm. Um, he was a remarkable uh, person. And, uh, and I did want to tell that. And then to talk about some of the efforts by Dr. June Scobie Rogers, the commander's widow, mm. and others to grapple with the meaning of what happened afterward. Mm-hmm. A tra- tragedy is, is by definition tragic. Uh, is there anything good that can be, that can be uh, created afterward to pay tribute to the lives of these astronauts? And the Challenger Centers, which are now all over the country and in several foreign countries, mm-hmm. um, which train young people in STEM skills in a fun way is, is one way that, uh, 
that the families banded together to uh, try to make something good come of this awful event. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Kevin Cook, author of The Burning Blue. You can find more information about the book at burningbluebook.com. If you like this episode so far, please like it and consider subscribing. All of my links can be heard at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. As you were talking, it came to um, to my mind that um, it might it must be difficult for astronauts, people picked for the program who are in training, to uh, to maybe complain or, or raise concerns about things they're seeing because you don't want to lose your spot. You you don't want to become that squeaky wheel that they don't want around. You know. Um, that's right. And when one is very careful and, and those those shuttle seats are so precious, mm -hmm. that's one thing that uh, Judith Resnick, for instance, the whole idea of the uh, the payload specialist program struck her as, as a fairly lame idea. She said, what are we going to do with these people? There had been two politicians, uh, Jake Garn, the senator from Utah, mm -hmm. who chaired the uh, budget committee that determined whether, whether NASA would get more or less money. Mm -hmm. And uh, then U.S. Representative Bill Nelson, now the administrator of NASA, uh, they flew uh, and there were other payload specialists, one of whom developed a somewhat unhealthy attraction to the hatch. He, he would say in an earlier shuttle mission, you know, if, if we just opened that hatch, all the air would fly out and we'd fly out. And the other astronauts got a little concerned about that, actually put a lock on the hatch. It's important to keep the payload specialists from opening the hatch or hitting the wrong switches. And that's one thing Krista McAuliffe said, I'm learning not to hit the wrong switches and to stay away from the switches, let those people do those things. And uh, Commander Scobie later like the rest of them, he came to like and admire Krista McAuliffe mm -hmm. for working so hard, for doing, for and enduring this torrent of media attention while going through the training. Uh, and finally, Scobie said uh, that he was just fine with a teacher at space program. He said, "Just don't make me fly with a politician." <laughs> so, so was there any um, as they were developing, you know, training and and working at this? Was there any did you come across doubts about the pro the payload specialist program to the point where they they might they thought about pulling the plug on it? They were happy with the program while this was going on, partly because it was succeeding so well in drawing new attention. As Scobie told Krista, "You're the reason we're on television mm -hmm. again." Here she is on on every big TV show. Here she is on the cover of magazines, left and right, um, and it was succeeding. She was told. Uh, in, a, in a very political, politically um, sensitive, diplomatic fashion, you might want to keep your politics to yourself because she is a Massachusetts-born New England Kennedy Democrat. Mm -hmm. And she said so. And uh, she was then reminded by the higher-ups at NASA, said, well, you know, President Reagan did, uh, did uh, start this program. It was Vice President George Bush who, uh, who announced that Krista McAuliffe would be the teacher in space so we're not telling you not to talk, but remember that uh, it's a good idea to keep one's politics uh, as diplomatic as possible while you, the cameras are rolling. Mm -hmm. And she did that because she saw that as as uh, part of her job. I think afterward, there was uh, uh, not only a great slowdown in the in the payload specialist program, uh, but a great deal of, of new concern about safety, not just for the payload specialists but for astronauts. And, uh, and I certainly hope 
that the great expense, the great attention that's coming to to the public-private partnerships that are coming in in, in missions to Mars and new missions to the Moon, mm-hmm. that uh, that as uh, Deputy Administrator Moorhart said at the latest uh, Day of Remembrance at Arlington National, safety must be the byword uh, if we are going to send human beings into space. We could send robots, but somehow it's not the same. It doesn't thrill us in the way that it does when people go up. So if people are going to go up, safety is going to have to be a paramount concern. Mm-hmm. So considering that uh, NASA was basically developing celebrities for this, did you come across in the program, Did they was there much of an emphasis on you know, looks and personality like you might see in Hollywood when they're developing a show, you know, that sort of thing? Well, there was definitely a heavy-duty uh, consideration of looks when they considered Big Bird to be one of the payload specialists because he'd certainly be recognizable, but he, he's had something like eight and a half feet tall, so he wouldn't fit. Uh, they weren't able to use uh, Big Bird. Certainly being telegenic, being pleasing, being a good talker, uh, being able to get the message across, that was a big concern to the panel in Washington, D.C. that narrowed down the semifinalists to the one teacher in space. Um, and uh, the panel included not only uh, uh, Gene Cernan and Harrison Schmidt, who were the last two men on the moon. Uh, uh, Deke Slayton was on the panel, uh, the great head of the astronaut office. Robert Jarvik, who invented the first artificial heart. There were, there were representatives of the military. There was also Wes Unseld, an NBA all-star, who was a star for Washington for some reason. Uh, and uh, Pam Dauber. The co-star of Mork and Mindy, yeah. uh, and some of the you know some of the teachers thought, is it strange that we're being evaluated by Mindy? Uh, and and they were told, well, you know what happened to her, and what's going to happen to the one who becomes teacher in space? You're going to be famous overnight. And she's someone who knows how that feels. She also knows how what it takes to come across on television effectively. Um, and and Krista McAuliffe. Uh, was very careful with her uh, written presentations and very nervous initially to make a videotape about how she would come across to the judges. Uh, but as as Mike Pride, who was then the the editor uh, in chief of the Concord Monitor, her hometown paper, he went on to work at Columbia and, and basically administer the Pulitzer Prizes. As he said of Krista, uh, the camera can't be fooled, and Krista doesn't lie. And she didn't. She was herself. And and I think that's a difficult thing. I remember talking, we've got a new Space Jam coming out. I remember talking to Michael Jordan after the first Space Jam. Mm-hmm. And he said, it's so difficult to be yourself on camera. Mm-hmm. And she had that ability. She, she thought about, uh, and she had a lot of practice, too, because she was such a great school teacher. Mm-hmm. Her kids would dress up in different as, as uh, Amelia Earhart as Rosa Parks and act as Sally Ride and act out uh, different uh, uh, aspects of history. She she was a very good teacher, made it live, and I, I think that really helped her um, come across so effectively as herself on the TV screen. Mm-hmm. When you talk about making a videotape, um, you know, to send in it, I think Amazing Race, you know, that sort oh, of thing. Yes, you right. Know, where you're. Tra- <laughs> You're trying to figure out what to present, you know. That's that's right. And trying to outside second guess in advance what the judges are looking for. She finally threw up her hands and said, I don't know what the judges are looking for. I'm just going to say why I, you know, she said, I grew up with the space program. She she was frankly feminist mm-hmm. uh, at the time. 
uh, and, and said, I feel that men have been encouraged to study math and to study science and to, and to go into the space program. Of course, at, at uh, the time that the shuttle program uh, began, when, when Sally Ride uh, and, and Judith Resnick and others became the first women to train as astronauts, at that time there had been 73 astronauts, 73 white men. Mm-hmm. And this is the period in which that changed. Uh, and she very frankly said, I feel women have been left out of this and I'm ready to participate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think her, her enthusiasm, her sincerity um, uh, and and her great ability to get across what she was being told, what was exciting about this program uh, is something that she would have done so well in her lessons from space uh, it, it was only a couple of years ago that on the International Space Station, Krista's lessons were finally performed and videotaped in space. And uh, as well as they were done, at, uh, she might have done them even better. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, just real quickly, is it, uh, these these audition tapes, are, do people post them online now? Or like, are they available in the historical record? Or I think they are. I saw a, a long section of, of uh, Krista's. I'm sure that people who weren't selected... Uh, hope that they're not available anywhere. I didn't see any of the other ones, although I spoke to uh, especially uh, uh, one of the other candidates who knew uh, who knew Krista McAuliffe very well and, and admired her. And uh, he, what he remembered of this time when they were putting together their videotapes and then waiting to hear the reaction was that uh, he and Krista McAuliffe both felt, both felt that they were out of their league. Because some of the other candidates were mountaineers, and and one was going to take a boat across the English Channel uh, or the Atlantic. I I, I don't want to make it seem less uh, imposing than it was. There were PhDs. Uh, Barbara Morgan, who was Krista's backup, uh, uh, runner-up in in the selection process, uh, was a brilliant uh, person from Stanford. Another great uh, school teacher. Uh, so I. I think that the selection process was correctly very much about who can be our NASA's liaison to the general public and get across what's so exciting about this process. Uh, and I think they made the right choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I think you said you also go through the training process, like everything she had to do to get physically ready. Oh, it's fascinating, yes. And she, she said to, after a, a visit with one of the particular uh, specialists at NASA, she said, I'm learning about parts of my body that I didn't know existed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, she, you know, she didn't spend a lot. She was a, they were all in good physical condition. She ran many marathons and things. But now you're running on a treadmill hooked up to an oxygen mask as they check your uh, oxygen uptake. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are nervous-making things. The... Uh, the uh, essential uh, flight, the, the, the vehicle that they took, which was called the Vomit Comet, it was a strato tanker. Um, I always expected simulations, but the only way to simulate zero gravity, the best way, uh, is to take a strato tanker with a very large aircraft and take it in huge parabolas. So on the way down, there is brief just as though you're going over the top of a roller coaster, there's a brief moment of weightlessness. That machine, that that uh, plane, is called the Vomit Comet, mm. and uh, Krista and 
many of the others felt great trepidation about getting on that thing. Uh, some of the astronauts said, you're, you're, you're going to be fine. Just don't take the whole tablet that they're going to give you, a Scopedex tablet. <laughs> oh, too late. We just took it. What, what's going to happen to us now? Uh, it took her time. I mean, this was a person who was uncomfortable riding on, on carnival rides, mm. who would get queasy on carnival rides. And now she's going to walk across a, basically a gangplank, 50 stories up just to get on the air, aircraft to get on the shuttle. And then the shuttle is going to blast her into orbit. Um, and there was trepidation. There was worry, but she overcame it because um, it was all part of the, her mission to promote teachers and come back to her schoolroom, which she was always going to do mm-hmm. and be able to tell her students about this wonderful adventure. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder if what they did then would be applied now, you know, as they talk about putting more civilians into space, you know, tourists. I think now it's just, do you have a billion dollars? Yeah. Uh, So many of the seats are going to people who uh, uh, are paying or buying the seats, but certainly there will will surely be other seats available. Hmm. That's, That's one reason I think it's, it's important to put oneself in the place of the other astronauts when they were a little hesitant to accept someone like Krista McAuliffe, because they had trained, they had close friends who'd been waiting years mm. to fly. There's only seven seats. And here is a school teacher getting one, largely because NASA wants to get the message out. She had to win them over. And that's another triumph on her part, I think, that she did. Uh, and and uh, uh, the other members of the crew thought of her as a full-fledged uh, member of the Challenger 7. Mm-hmm. So let me turn to uh, how you did the research for this book. Um, what did you do? Gosh, it was it was I was very lucky that most of it happened before the pandemic last mm-hmm. March. That I got to spend a good deal of time uh, in the archives at NASA headquarters in D.C., which delightfully is now the signs outside uh, say "Hidden Figures Way" mm-hmm. after the book "Hidden Figures" that Margot Lee Shetterly wrote and and became such a good, important, and popular movie. Mm-hmm. That's that's a book that was also researched right right there, uh, so that was good company. Uh, I was I was very pleased to find very well kept uh, voluminous files on all seven of the Challenger uh, astronauts, uh, as well as memos that had not been reported on before. Mm-hmm. Um, I also uh, spent a great deal of time with the wonderful the trove of Q and As. Uh, that are part of the Johnson Space Center's oral history collection. Mm-hmm. That's a, uh, there's an interviewer named Jennifer Ross Nazal down at uh, uh, JSC in Houston who does really fine uh, interviews, uh, and there's still a lot of living memory. I think that's such an important thing. That was, that was a treasure trove of information. People like Frank Hughes, people like David Hilmers, who was one of the astronauts on the return to space, the next one where the astronauts gave a very moving tribute it was two and a half years later, there were no shuttles. Mm. There were going to be 14 more shuttles just in 1986. Mm. Instead, there are none until 1988 when the return to space mission flies and Hilmers and the other astronauts wrote what I, I find to be a very fine and moving uh, tribute to uh, those who lost their lives on Challenger. And they waited. They said they waited until they were entering space. They said here where the sky begins to turn from blue to black. Uh, they wanted to remember them. It was great to know them. It was great to learn switchology uh, from Jim Weatherby a little a little bit. It was great to talk to uh, 
um, other astronauts and uh, uh, workers down at uh, KSC, including Mike Chinelli, and to visit uh, Kennedy Space Center, also to become uh, acquainted and an admirer of Dr. June Scobie Rogers, the commander's widow, who really took it upon herself, along with the families, mm -hmm. to create the Challenger Centers, to carry on the mission, as she said. Her daughter, Kathy Scobie Fulgham, who wrote a beautiful open letter to the Columbia families afterwards saying, no one can know how awful this is for you, but I feel some of it, having been through... Uh, having been through Challenger. Hmm. Uh, all of these people bring a perspective that then one tries to do justice to when it's time to sit down and produce pages. Um, and uh, and that's really one of the things, you know, I, I always wait in the middle of the night for the gnomes to come down and write the book themselves. <laughs> uh, and that just refuses to happen. So you do have to produce the pages. And one thing that uh, kept me highly motivated all the way through was the idea that there's some duty to try to do as good a job as one can to these lives. Mm -hmm. What was the uh, most surprising thing that you came across? Well, I loved, absolutely loved the diversity of of the crew. And when you f find out more about these crew members, I mean, the early part of the research, I would come home and tell my wife again, oh, you can't believe this astronaut I talked to. And, and before long, one realizes the astronauts are a highly special, very carefully selected group of people. They're all death-defying valedictorians, <laughs> and and they're 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 brilliant people. So uh, I was I was very struck by uh, Dr. Ron McNair, who is uh, one of the leading laser physicists in America. He's out of MIT. Uh, he goes into the space program. Also happens to be a concert-level saxophonist who would gig with touring bands when, when they came through Houston. He also led a swing band called Contraband in Houston, made up of other JSC workers. And he also happened to be, in addition to NASA's premier flying laser physicist, the man who's going to uh, study lasers in behavior in space, uh, he's also a black belt who, if you convince him at a party, by bringing out some planks of wood or a cement block, he will break it with one karate chop and then very uh, lucidly describe the physics of how that's, it has to do with, if you, what you have to do is imagine that the bones in your hand were made of cement. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, they would, they would break pretty easily. They're actually stronger and much more flexible than cement. So if you can bring that down at the right spot on a cement block, it will just go like that. I was so pleased to have a photo of that in the book <laughs> of Dr. McNair smashing a cement block. So maybe that cement block was the biggest surprise. <laughs> I'm speaking with Kevin Cook, author of The Burning Blue. You can find more information about the book at burningbluebook.com. If you like this episode so far, please like it and consider subscribing. All of my links can be heard at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. What uh, what question did, were you trying to um, answer that that was most the most difficult to research, and maybe you did come to a conclusion, or it's still an open question for you? I think it would be what happened after the external tank blew up in the sky. This is the moment that almost all viewers thought, "Well, that's unsurvivable," and then the next thing we knew was they have not survived. That uh, that the mission and crew are lost. 
but the crew compartment uh, was not burned. I mean, the shuttle is protected by the silicon tiles that will keep it from burning up on reentry. It's very resistant to fire. Mm. Uh, in fact, when the external tank exploded, it added thrust to the crew compartment, which separated from the, which torn clear of the rest of the shuttle. The crew compartment carrying the seven astronauts still alive continued to go up on momentum. I mean, it was moving faster than a rifle bullet at the moment of the explosion. It goes up to 65,000 feet from 46 before it runs out of momentum and begins to fall. And it falls, the, the time from the explosion to the impact with the Atlantic is two minutes and 45 seconds, an extraordinarily long time. During that time, after the explosion, at least Three of the personal emergency air packs that the astronauts had uh, were activated. The two belonging to Scobie and Smith in the, uh, in the uh, flight deck could not be activated by Scobie and Smith without their standing up, which was impossible. They had to have either uh, Ellison Onizuka or Judith Resnick sitting behind them activate them. We know that Michael Smith's uh, personal egress, personal uh, emergency air pack was activated during training. It was Anazuka. It was the mission specialist sitting in his seat that did that. That makes me believe that it was Ellison Anazuka who had to reach forward and activate the emergency uh, air to give Pilot Smith a chance to throw buttons and 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 dials and buttons were thrown after the protected dials and buttons after the explosion. It could not have happened by accident, and that's what I believe demonstrates conclusively uh, that the astronauts, at least some, were alive and conscious and heroically trying to save themselves and the mission in the period after uh, the explosion. And they did not die until the crew compartment strikes the water at 207 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, how much of the, the book, um, how many pages would you say do you go into detail about, you know, these circumstances? About the, that two minutes and 45 seconds, it's one chapter. It's about 20 pages. Okay. Um, most of most of the book is uh, preparation and training. Uh, and then we do find out what happened afterward, the inquest and, and the uh, uh, efforts to pay tribute to the astronauts in various ways, including the Lessons Learned program, which is ongoing and very important uh, down at uh, Kennedy Space Center. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, its full name, it being NASA, it has a very long acronym of a name, uh, is, is the, the uh, Apollo Challenger Columbia Lessons Learned program, A-C-C-L-L-P, mm -hmm. uh, run by uh, Mike Cinelli. Uh And he not only gives talks to SpaceX, to Blue Origin, uh, to, uh, to Virgin Galactic, to other aerospace firms, uh, but, but to, uh, to uh, people in, in other specialties, in medicine, in the military, about how important it is to listen to conflicting views. There was a, there was a teleconference the night before this, this launch uh, on the coldest day in memory in, at Cape Canaveral when the engineers say it's not safe to launch, we cannot okay launch, and they were talked out of it by their managers. Uh, to the great chagrin of, of everyone involved. Uh, Mike Cinelli and others uh, at uh, KSC are trying to make sure that those lessons are remembered. And uh, as, as Cinelli puts very uh, 
eloquently, I think. He says, since 1986, we've come a long way in terms of diversity of race, of sexual orientation, not so much of opinion. And that's what we need to defend. We need to make sure that if someone is going to, if an engineer is going to put his career on the line and say, I have great concerns about this particular aspect of this mission, that rather than have the boss say, it's time to take your engineer's hat off and put a managerial hat on, which is what they were told that day, the boss says, I understand and I've got your back. Hmm. How much, uh, so after the, the disaster, did NASCA, was, were there like uh, public firings of people, you know, like blaming there were people? Really or- quiet. There were, there were demotions, hmm. there were, there were uh, rearrangements, hmm. uh, and there was the understanding that uh, uh, you were going to be able to take retirement, and this would be a very good time to do it. Uh, it, it wasn't the sort of public head rolling that one might have expect, expected. It uh, it happened quietly. And there was also a real dearth of talk about the space program in that two and a half years when the, there were no shuttles flying. So that was a good time if you were one of the managers uh, who said, well, where, when do you want me to take off this next April? Uh, putting pressure on the engineers to go along with the launch, um, it's a good time to find oneself a, a quieter job uh, for the near future. Hmm. So I know. So obviously, this is a very emotional um, topic. Uh, but was there anything that particularly stood out for you that was the most emotional, and that could either be positive or negative? Hmm. It it, it was very difficult to go again and again, at least mentally, into the crew compartment in the time when it will surely dawn to especially – there are two aspects to being in the crew compartment. One is in the, on the mid-deck where you don't have anything to do. Mm-hmm. You're not flying the craft. In fact, computers are flying the craft uh, all the way into orbit. What, what the commander and pilot were able to do was at least attempt – to take manual control, and that's what I believe they did. Uh, but if you were on the mid-deck, there are no windows. Uh, there's nothing to do but wait in terror. The lights have all gone off. Uh, and and the helplessness of that, I think, was one of the more awful things to contemplate. Uh, on the flight deck, where Commander Scobie and Pilot Smith and mission specialists uh, Resnick and Anazuka are, there is an attempt to save this craft. They don't know whether it's salvageable or not. I'm surely they suspected it was not. In fact, from the moment of the explosion, there, there are no escape uh, hatches. There are no parachutes. There were ejector seats in the first challenge, in the first shuttle missions, but those were removed after the, the, the crews get so large that it wouldn't have been at all practical to have seven, hmm. uh, seven ejector seats. Uh, and it, it was a very slim probability that that would help in a, in a space shuttle mission in any case. Uh, so I, I, I think imagining oneself in, in that space, uh, I also spoke with when Weatherby talked with me about the way a commander thinks, he suspected, he, he said, had it been me, he would have done these things that I believe that Dick Scobie did. If it's possible to save the craft and the crew, this is what to do. Then comes the dawning that these these things are not working. We are not able to take manual control of this craft. This craft is 
doomed, as are we. And and Weatherby said he felt that at some moment he would have sat and tried to make peace with his maker. I don't know if that's what happened with Smith and Scobie. Uh, but to work on that time and try to uh, try to do justice to what they would have done, they're, they're extremely well-trained. Mm-hmm. They don't panic. To try to figure out what they were done, that's, that's what gets one past, at least in my case, the difficulty and the darkness of, of remembering one's or trying to think one's way into, into such a difficult situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's um, something that maybe some people don't think about, which is that these pilots are creatures of routine. They've been trained so um, thoroughly that and I think they're emotionally they're so well controlled you know they control their emotions so well that yeah they can just even in the face of of high danger and a high threat they can just do what they need to do you know that's well put I think that that they were trained again and again and again and again with what are called green cards these are situations that you didn't expect Mm -hmm. you might get three or four green cards in the middle of a simulation Mm -hmm. Scobie, in, in one simulation, he was going to land a shuttle, uh, and um, inadvertently, the people who were operating the simulator left the lights out. Uh, and Gregory Jarvis was on in the same simulation with him, and, and he says, he says Scobes, I think they left the lights out. Uh, and, you know, did you, did you folks forget to turn the lights out? Uh, and Scobie says, don't worry about it. You know, maybe this is just another challenge they have. And he landed the the simulated shuttle in utter darkness with no lights on the runway or anything, um, just because that's the kind of pilot uh, that he was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Smith uh, was uh, another brilliant pilot. Uh, for that matter, uh, Dr. Judith Resnick got her pilot's license and very typically of her scored 100 on her uh, pilot's exam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What did you find in the research? What was most enjoyable for you? Uh, getting to know some some of the things about uh, them. Resnick, uh, for instance, um, she she's we talk about the achievements of astronauts. Uh, at a very young age, she was a concert level pianist who uh, was thought about going to Juilliard, but she thought electrical engineering and math were more practical. She went to Carnegie Mellon, which would soon be Carnegie uh, University, where she was one of only three women in a class of 90. She goes through with flying colors, naturally, uh, and skips a master's program, goes directly to a PhD program in electrical uh, engineering. This is all uh, after I left out one detail early on. Mm. She scored 1,600 on her SATs, Mm. one of uh, a few perfect scores recorded up until uh, that time. Mm -hmm. She also, uh, during her time, before she even applied to become uh, an astronaut, this is the time when uh, Xerox... Uh, was applying for some patents based on some of uh, her work. She wrote a scholarly paper about the way that uh, electrical impulses pass from the optic nerve, from the the retina through the optic nerve into the brain, where they're reassembled into images. She studied that by uh, dissecting frogs and and described it in a scholarly paper which the name of the paper is in the book the name of the paper is is a line and a half long in the book 
and and has several words that uh, I have to go along syllable by syllable to pronounce. I was able to follow the first paragraph of this long scholarly paper, and then much like like Richard Feynman's uh, uh, lectures on uh, on quantum physics, uh, I was lost about a paragraph and a half down and left it to the specialists after that. Okay. So a question I forgot to ask earlier, radio communications, when, when the explosion happened, I guess it must have destroyed any kind of radio link or, or recording. It did. It was reconstructed later. The the It was believed for some weeks after the accident, after the explosion, that the last thing that was heard from the crew was when Commander Scobie said, Roger, go and throttle up. This was quoted by John Glenn at a memorial service for Dr. Resnick. Um, it was it was in news accounts and on television again and again. And that was said to be the epitaph of the Challenger 7, Roger, go at throttle up. Uh, in fact, it was reconstructed later that there was a little bit of communication between the flight deck and uh, mission control in Houston uh, afterward. And that's what led me and others to believe that that uh, commander smith who was sitting that pilot smith who was sitting on the right hand side of the flight deck he's he's got a window over here which is closer to the side it was the right hand rocket booster that led to the explosion that uh, burned through the exterior of the uh, external tank and everything starts to burn and go haywire on that side that he may have been the first to see that something was going wrong because the very last audio from the flight deck was pilot Smith saying, "Uh Oh, Hmm. Uh, and, and that's another somewhat haunting moment that, and, and as laconic, you mentioned how, how uh, these are not the kind of people that are so carefully trained and, and so steely Hmm. uh, that uh, I could, I could imagine uh, hearing Something, something like that, uh, and 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 sadly, that was the last syllable that came came from uh, Challenger. Mm-hmm. Did you have any difficulties getting the book finished or published? And you did mention COVID, uh, maybe not didn't impact it, but uh, the COVID actually made it uh, somewhat. It did, turned out to be a good time to be working on books to to have almost all the research done. One positive is telephone calls, uh, emails, and and things during the pandemic. The person you're looking for is likely to be reachable Mm. because we're all just holed up by our phones and our computers um, uh, waiting out this this pandemic. Um, So I I was very grateful to all the people who spent uh, a good deal of time with me, not only before, but but during the pandemic, shared their expertise, shared their memories of their loved ones, Mm. too. and and some of these memories are painful to to uh, uh, Dr. Rogers, to Cheryl McNair, to uh, uh, to uh, the uh, other loved ones who saw what happened uh, to uh, the crew. When it did come time to produce the pages, a pandemic is a good time for that. You don't have to get up and run out the door in the morning. Hmm. Uh, don't even have to get dressed after breakfast. It's time to sit down and and uh, try to try to uh, do justice to this paragraph. It's a, if it's about one of the seven people that uh, that I, I cared for, and and to be as clear as possible. Uh, if it was some of the connective tissue that uh, that needs to explain what was what was going on at the time. Mm-hmm. 
as far as getting a publisher? Was that pretty? Uh, uh, it was easy. was my publisher of, of my my previous uh, couple of books. Oh, okay. uh, so uh, Henry Holt, uh, wonderful people that, that uh, uh, I've been very proud and pleased uh, to work with uh, there. Uh, they were excited about uh, the Burning Blue, and and I'm proud that uh, that it's got that age for Holt on the spine. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, what's your um, current or next writing project? I'm not allowed to say. It's okay. uh, it's another event uh, that that I think people will remember. But uh, one of the things about fairly recent American history, I think there's been such a torrent of information since events like these uh, took place mm-hmm. that many of us remember a little bit about it, but remember where we were standing, what it looked like, maybe a, a name or two, or or was that the one where this happened? when the story behind the story is almost endlessly deep and fascinating. Those are the kind of stories that appeal to me. That's what, uh, you know, you, you are devoting years of your life to this, to a project like this. It's going to have to be pretty interesting to you mm-hmm. for starters. Yeah. Uh, that was certainly the case uh, for me uh, with uh, the burning blue. Mm-hmm. Do you ever um, start a project, start researching it, and then at some point say, you know what, this doesn't quite have enough meat. I'm going to put it aside. There have been times when you think maybe this would be an excellent magazine story. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, there isn't enough room, as much room in the world for magazine stories uh, as there used to used to be. I, I did a story for the Wall Street Journal that I initially thought might be part of it had to do with baseball. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had uh, I had done several baseball books after doing some other books i'd always my my uh my father was a minor league pitcher and so we shared baseball for a long time and and i wanted to write baseball books a couple of them and did mm. and was very pleased to uh have done those maybe that was an instance in which uh what uh, would have been quite a thin book turned out to be a, a serviceable and and uh, really enjoyable to work on a newspaper story mm. That makes sense. Okay. Ultimately, what would you like readers to take away from this book? I hope they'll think about why Krista McAuliffe left her family and her beloved classes uh, and her hometown for a year Mm -hmm. to remind people of the importance of school teachers. Mm -hmm. She, she was active in the, uh, labor movement. Um, she felt that teachers were grievously underpaid. Mm. I think that's only become more so since 1986, when one hears about school teachers reaching into their own pockets to pay for school supplies. That is a crime. One thing that I hoped very much, maybe above all other things while working on the book, was that I would be able to speak with uh, Steve McAuliffe, mm. Judge Steve McAuliffe, uh, who was a federal judge in uh, New Hampshire. He and Krista McAuliffe married. Uh, They were high school sweethearts Mm. in uh, 1970. Uh, I was so gratified and and pleased and thankful that that he did answer questions from me. He hadn't answered questions about uh, Krista uh, since the event and had passed up many, many uh, opportunities to do so. Mm. Uh, One thing he told me was, that he hoped that this experience we'd all shared in 2020 and 21 of the pandemic, uh, when people wound up acting as school teachers for their own kids at home, in many cases, had enhanced the the, the opinion of, 
of the people the public had for school teachers. And if that's true, uh, and that that is part of the last part of the book, I, I too hope that that's true. And and to anybody who feels warmly toward Krista McAuliffe, I believe the whole country should. The best way to do tribute to her is to do right by school teachers, and that's something that can still be done. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I um kind of an aside. I hope it doesn't sound uh, whimsical in comparison to this this topic. But uh, and I interviewed Andy Weir, who just wrote mm-hmm. uh, Project Hail Mary, and the main character is a teacher. Good book and great covers. They, he has great covers too. Oh yeah. So just talking about Krista McAuliffe and you know her her being a teacher and other aspects just made me think of his book um i'm just curious not that you can answer this i'm curious if her story at all inspired who he chose um yes a a good question and uh i i think another part of the ongoing uh tribute uh to her the to the importance of what she did is the many many teachers uh who became school teachers because of her example Mm. Uh, not only in her school, but really all over the country and, and even the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it, you know, people use the term publicity stunt for this, but, but it's, it has so much positive effect. You know, it's like, yeah, you can trivialize publicity stunt and use that term, but really it, it has more value than that. You know, it was a publicity stunt in a, in a good way. I mean, it, it had aspects of pure stunts mm-hmm. to try to draw eyes to the program but I think she was sensible and practical and smart and determined enough to take the publicity stunt aspect of it and turn that to her cause, to make something positive for school teachers out of it. And and I, in that way, I think she was a great success. Mm-hmm. Uh, where can people find you on the web? Do you have a social media website? Uh, there, there is a burningbluebook.com would be the place to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly the, the book's visible and, and buyable at uh, Amazon, but I always hope that uh, people will remember their independent bookstores near near them. We need to keep independent bookstores uh, going. Uh, they can certainly coexist with Amazon. The uh, And I'd, I'd be glad to, to hear from any uh, any uh, listeners who wanted to check out uh, burningbluebook.com. Okay. So that's all the questions I have. Do you have any parting thoughts or words? Um, just thank you for uh, taking the time to, to read the book. We talked about any weird uh, fine uh, covers. I love the background that, uh, that you have to talk to. It's, okay. it's, it's thematic and beautiful to look at. Mm-hmm. You know, I appreciate your attention to the book. Yeah, thank you. I, I appreciate it. And I, um, encourage readers to pick it up and and read this story very important story i think thanks so much so thank you in the next episode i speak with jeff shessel about his book on john glenn and the mercury mission space dock the subscribe button to catch that episode thank you for listening to technology and space if you want more interviews with space scientists space historians and technology experts or daily space and science book suggestions check out technologyandspace.com and follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks MT on Twitter, and this podcast, Technology and Space. If you want interviews with military historians or daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and follow me at Warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, at Chris Alvarez Warscholar on Instagram, 
and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily fiction suggestions including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com and follow me on Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd on YouTube, Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. Thank you for listening. And I hope to see you again soon.